Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. This is an interesting week to be doing a book event right before Thanksgiving. I talked to a British author today, and she said somebody had wished her a happy holiday, and she thought, it's not till December. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, Thanksgiving is really a uniquely, well, not uniquely because Canada has one, but it's a special American holiday. So thank you all for coming out this evening to celebrate it, and to Jack DeBrule, who is joining us tonight on a interesting week to fly into Phoenix to talk about Clive Cussler's The Sea Wolves. Ooh, that's a great title, Jack. You have to hold this up. Or that, that actually wasn't my original title. They changed no. it on me. It was Wolfpack. Oh. The book just came out earlier in the year with the same title, so we had to ch change it up. Got it. And so didn't the Germans actually call themselves something like wolves? Yeah, it was the Wolfpack. Or the, uh, the, uh, yeah, the wolf, they called them wolf packs. That's how they hunted the, the submarines. Right. So all together. It, it still worked. It does. So what we have here is, um, oh, you tell it. It's your book. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so we have Isaac Bell. Yes. Um, without giving too much away, um, I was working on the saboteurs. I was trying to think of ideas for the next book. And I look at the historical events of what's going on at you know, roughly that time. And, of course, the sinking of the Lusitania was one of the triggers that got us into World War I. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have Isaac Bell on the Lusitania when it sank? But that really wasn't a good enough hook. So then my idea was, well, then Isaac Bell was the reason the Germans had to sink it. And that's how the plot started, or that's how the, 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 the book will end. Um, but that's the genesis of the whole plot idea. And it was a lot of fun to work with. It is. It's a lot of fun to read it. And there's not only submarines and other stuff, but there's some serious um, aviation things in it, which I really, really enjoyed. Because we're not, you know, we're not that far away from the right, but we're in 2015. I'm sorry, 1915. Yeah, it's only 12 years. Yeah. And it was all that stuff's all still brand new. But it's astonishing. Um, I mean, there's a whole thing at one point about how to fuel a plane sufficiently to let it fly out and try to intercept a ship. And, you know, you can't even imagine that when the Wright brothers were, like, running on the breach in Kitty Hawk, Kitty you know? Kitty Hawk, right. Yep. There's a, a photo in a book I just showed you in the back about the Wright brothers and their airplane, which had a kind of a dimple effect on the wings, which helped them fly it. But clearly, by the time you're writing, um, yep. we're much more sophisticated in design and construction, are we? Yeah, their wings actually flexed to get more lift. And again, by, by the 19 you know, teens, they had the rigid wing. They knew how to make it work much better. And mm -hmm. they're starting to experiment with monoplanes versus biplanes. Yeah. Yeah, I love all that. Yeah. Right. And we're, you know, like flying out from Long Island and trying to go into the North Atlantic. But we'll get to that. But, you know, it, it with the war in the Ukraine going on, I think it's interesting to think that in both world wars, America did not want to join up and fight. No. I, in fact, I mean, I was born in 1940, so, you know, I was a child during the war. But you would think, as an historian, that I knew this. But I just assumed that after Pearl Harbor that we declared war on Germany. But no, we didn't. In fact, Germany, Hitler, declared war on us, which is considered one of his major blunders. Yeah. Because if he hadn't, it's not entirely clear that Roosevelt could have pushed us into you know, fighting in Europe theater. as well. I mean, Japan was a already, you right. know, gone thing. But the drag in the First World War in the time, because it began in the summer of 1914, and the United States didn't enter the war until 1917. The, yeah. So you're in, a, you're in a territory where um, 
there's both pro-war and serious anti-war yeah, the country was, was heavily divided, and I mean, especially I mean, Wilson, as a you know lifelong pacifist, did, wanted nothing to do with the war at all. And you know, the the drag against the United States, you know, for both the Allies and the Axis powers to get us involved was tremendous. And you know, we still had a, a great relationship with Britain the way we do now. Um, and so, again, a lot of people really we should be helping them out. But what can we do to maintain the strict neutrality that that we had to have? So it was a, a very tight balance. It really was. And the other sort of Jules Verne thing going on there is that the Germans had developed submarines. And the whole idea of, you know, undersea war and right. torpedoes and all of that was pretty new. And then they had what they called unrestricted submarine warfare, which in any ship in the Atlantic was fair game. At the beginning of the war, it was just a tight box around England that they would hit vessels, and even then only British flagged vessels, or allied, I think the French too. But then um, it was during, I think the beginning of 1915, that the Germans said, no, any uh, any ship in the war zone is fair game. So that's when they started shooting, you know, that's when, you know, well, of course, Lucene was British, but I forget the, the first American ship that was torpedoed, like 124 Americans were killed. And again, people were clamoring, you know, to Wilson, look, the Germans are killing our people, get us involved, and Wilson still wouldn't do it. It's interesting that Wilson was not really the right president to be a wartime president, or as it turned out, because of his health, because he had a stroke, and his wife took over running the White House for yeah. quite a while. Um, his second wife, who was an interesting character in herself, he wasn't even the right president for the peace, because the Treaty of Versailles, which directly led us into World, World War, War II, II yeah. um, a different president, I think, would have, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, <laughs> would have made that um, a different a different outcome. Whereas in World War II, Roosevelt really wanted to get us into war, and, and he and Churchill flirted around with that for a long time. Um, so they were very different. Long Pearl Harbor, yeah. the Lend-Lease and all that. Yep. So if Isaac Bell survives to, you know, go all the way up to 1939 or 40, yeah. uh, which is not improbable, no. um, you know, there's plenty of interesting things to write about. So Isaac Bell, you know, all... all Cussler adventures have serious history in them, right? I mean, there's always, it's been one of the great things about reading Clive is that, you know, and, and the other authors, is that you get to learn really cool stuff about history in places that you might not right. know about. But Isaac Bell, he's the only actual, all the way through, historical figure, picture, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, that's why when you know, Clive asked me to do uh, an Isaac Bell book, um, and I came up with the Titanic secret, I wanted to flip that classic... Cussler, you know, twist upside down. So the book actually starts today, and then jumps back into the into the history. Um, but yeah, he's the only character that is full historic. And when did I'm trying to remember? Because Justin Scott wrote the original ones. When did he start? Do you guys remember? I mean, I don't mean when did Justin start writing them. I'm sorry. What I meant was where was Isaac Bell on the time. Spectrum. Do any of you remember where the... Well, the, the one Clive did was the uh, uh, San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Okay. Um, All right. And then I know Justin set one prior to that to be kind of like Isaac's first... Uh, a bit case. of a prequel. Yep, yep. And then the last one, chrono chronologically at least, was uh, the bootleggers, which is 1920. So okay. that, that, that whole span... Was kind of fair so game. if it was 1920, you went back a bit. I went back a bit, yes. Yeah, because again, when I came up with the idea of the Titanic secret, like, well, we got to go back to 1912. But Justin never kept anything chronological. He jumped around as well. Um, so but it, it so far worked out. I'm staying chronological, <laughs> just how my brain works.
Well, I mean, it's a really interesting time period. It is. It is. Yeah, because again, you can you know, play around with German spies and saboteurs, and and I mean, there were cases of Germans spying and being saboteurs in the United States. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, there's a, a dock fire in uh, New Jersey, and then something off the coast of California. I forget what it was. I was looking into that as well. There's a, a book that we did an event for at the end of September by Susan Elia McNeil called Mother, Daughter, Trader, Spy. And it's set in Los Angeles in the 19, early 1940, I think it is, or 30. Anyway, there's a whole German spy ring in Los Angeles, German sympathizers, and they actually built Hitler a West Coast White House. I mean, actually really? did that. Yeah. I know. I was completely fascinated with the historical. And there were indeed German plots, too. We're going to be talking to Brad Meltzer in uh, January. I'm trying to remember the second Sunday in January. God, and a and it's about, <laughs> it's about um, a, a Nazi plot to kill Roosevelt. Hmm. So there were active German um, spies and terrorists yep. and saboteurs and so forth in the United States in both wars. Both wars. Yep. I mean, we think about the Japanese internment, but in truth, the German populations were probably more dangerous than the West it, Coast Japanese yeah. ever were. Interesting. That's, I, I love doing the historic books because you just, it's humbling to know how much you don't know. Absolutely. When you start looking into things. It's just, it's like, whoa, I had no idea that's how that worked or, or whatever it was. So when you were plotting out this book, you know, you know you're going to end with the Lusitania. Yes. Um, but you have to have an original instigating right. incident. I love right. that phrase, instigating incident. It just cracks me up. So um, so we actually are in French Guiana, and you've all heard of Devil's Island, I'm sure, you know, the infamous prison. But it wasn't, according to your research. No. Devil's Island was actually not the infamous prison. It was not prison. the infamous. That was, that was actually for political prisoners uh, like Dreyfus. René Dreyfus was there. Um, there was the, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the island. There was three islands in the chain. Um, it was the, the other one that was the solitary confinement, was the real bad place. But Devil's Island just sounds so great for a story. Um, but then again, the entire coast of Guyana was all part of the penal system, which I had no idea. It's France was, French was, the French were sending all their prisoners over there basically as slave labor to turn Guyana into a, a, a successful colony, which failed miserably. Yeah, but the, you know, the French still actually have some overseas colonies. They have reunion. In the Indian Ocean, um, my husband and I went to French Polynesia. You think of it as Tahiti, but it's just one of several islands. Mm -hmm. We were there last May. It's still an active French colony, and I think French Guiana is still. I believe you're right. I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. And, and, but anyway, your scenes, the opening scenes of this thing are basically a prison break. So I'm not spoiling anything because that's <laughs> how it's there. That's really, the scenes that you set there are so horrible. How did you research the way these guys were treated? Uh, or the internet, you just like make everybody it up? else. No, no, it, it, it's it's pretty close to what they did, and oh. and um, I saw a bunch of videos of of the buildings themselves, what they looked like, and how just stark they were, and you know, just the, again, the brutality of the the. You know, they talk about the sentencing. Um, if you're sentenced to solitary confinement, it's, it's six months. Um, you're not allowed to speak for six months. Um, there's no cover over your your cell, so when it rains, you got hurricanes, you got whatever, the beating down sun. Um, you know, again, they said that you know, most of the guys that, that survived that were literally insane because of the treatment. Yeah. I can well imagine it, not to mention the insects. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a horrible, almost um, like the Everglades or something. 
and you know probably snakes. Oh, every, and, yeah, you know yeah. just awful and diseases. You know typhus, malaria, yeah. whatever. Malaria. Yeah, I know malaria was is was an astonishing killer for centuries. Yes, millennia actually. Yeah. I yeah. don't know that we actually realized just how lethal it, it, malaria was. Killed more, more humans than anything else in history. It has, and I think recently I read that they're coming up with a, a treatment. There's been a vaccine available. Last time that I had to take it, I had to take it when we went to Myanmar, I had to take it in Asia, and then I had to take it in South Africa, and I got so sick from, the, I'm trying to remember I, what it's I, called. I know, I, that, uh, that I, headache you got two days after yep, you took the pill, I, I know I, exactly what you're talking about. I finally said, to, you know, unless I'm eligible for the vaccine, I am done yeah. with going to the malaria parts of the world, but rightly, they were keeping, they are keeping the vaccine for people who, who really live there, and, you know, not for tourists yeah, like no. like me, but, you know, even though you didn't want to take the, the drug, you had to. Yeah. the consequences of having malaria were so horrendous, Yeah, and, you know, the French, I'm trying to remember when they dug the Panama Canal, because that's a Clive book, isn't there, wasn't there, which one of the coasts are where we're down digging out the Panama uh, Canal. Saboteurs. My, my previous your book. book? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Um, but malaria was a real... Oh, yeah. Killed 40,000 people. Right. On Did their first attempt. Was it yellow fever, too? Most of malaria. Some yellow fever, yeah. Right. Um, but, yeah, it was just... And when we went in to, for our attempt, we didn't dig anything for about two years until we drained all the, the swampland. So we would have that, that mass you know, death the way that the French did. Yeah. Well, I mean, New Orleans suffered from that. New Orleans Washington, D.C. suffered yeah. from that. Yeah, terrible because yeah. it's a swamp. Yeah. Still is Still a swamp. Is swamp <laughs> <laughs> he didn't drain the swamp. <laughs> Literally did not drain the swamp. Anyway, um, so we have a prison break, but it turns out that what we have is one German um, agent is in there to bust out an even more dangerous German agent. So I thought that was an interesting way for you to start it because, you know, you think you were going to be springing somebody that, you know, was going to be a good guy, but you're actually nope. springing the really the, worst the guy. guy. <laughs> yep. And, you know, what? thrillers really depend on the villain. To a really great thriller depends on how good the villain is. So you, you right from the beginning, yes. you give us this astonishing villain. Um. Well, as actually two of them. Yeah, well, Clive gave us one of them. I'll take it. How did he? Yeah, um, Foss Gly was one of the villains in uh, uh, what was the book? Cyclops. Uh, so this is actually Foss Gly's great. Or his, his grandfather is just as bad as as. Yeah, did you ever, did you know that what I did with Titanic Secret? I've got five characters in there are the grandparents of of people from Clive's later books. Um, just I didn't realize Easter it was eggs. that many. Yeah. Well, what fun. Yep, yep, yep. I just, I just, it, why not? <laughs> Absolutely. I love Easter eggs. Do you guys like Easter eggs? Isn't that fun to recognize? I'm assuming most of you here have probably read all the Kustlers. Not all. Some. Right. Well, there's 80 of them, 82 right now, so. <laughs> I know, but some of you have been reading them in real time, um, you know, from, I've read them in real time since 1990, I think it is, but. Yeah, but that's all. It's a lot of books. Yeah, but what fun for you to oh, to it was do a blast. That. It was just you but, know finding ways to sneak them in there. So anyway, we have um, a really and that's, I mean, this is this is mostly naval. This is mostly maritime. This book and there are some yes. scenes on land and yep. there are some in the air, which yep. are great, but more or less. So part of the break because it's an island, is um, is they have to like row in there and row away from it and, you know, do all that great stuff to get away from the guards. Right. So 
How did you, how did you, do you see this stuff when you're writing it? How do you do that? Uh, I see the pictures and just describe what I'm seeing. That's how my imagination works. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I could see, you know, when I came up with the whole scene, I, I, I've got, you know, guys rowing the shores. I can see, is that what we, what's the weather like? Was it hot? Is it you know, windy, choppy? Um, and it start describing, you know, okay, well, they get into the jungle, it's pitch black. Okay. It's, you know, and then we can't hear the waves as much anymore. I kind of put that in there. Just just keep layering details in as I see them. Um, Isn't there a vicious tide? Do I remember? Yes, that there, absolutely. So part yes. of the problem yeah. with the rescue boat is that the tide might do might, them in. Yeah. Um, and that's actually what kept prisoners there. Uh, you know, the, the, on some of the, the the islands where they were uh, the political prisoners, there's no guards there. There's no, you know, they weren't chained or anything. Because, again, you couldn't get off this island because of, the, A, the currents, and B, whoever died there, they threw the bodies into the But trained the sharks. Yeah. You know, the sharks got used to the bell ringing, and they thought, oh, good, lunch, you yeah. know. And so there they were. See, so you all know where this is. It's on the shoulder of South America or just off the, you know, the shoulders. You're yeah. coming around from, what is it, Venezuela to yep. Brazil? Yeah. Those little islands out there. The French were kind of, you know, they, they lost Canada, um, but they wanted to keep a toehold in this hemisphere, and so they hung on to this. Yeah little part. They also, um, I don't know if you could ever use this, but there are two islands off the coast of, um, trying to remember which part of Canada, anyway, Saint-Pierre-Miquelin are actually um, part of Brittany, but they are right off the Canadian coast. Really? So, uh, they're I'm French giving, territory? I'm giving you this as yeah. a gift for the, your next book. Did I, did I, do you all know this story? No. It's fabulous. So St. Pierre Miquelin actually had its own archbishop. Um, there are two little islands. I'm trying to remember exactly which part of Canada they're off. But whatever it is, because they were French, during Prohibition, there was no law that said that Seagram's, I think it is, in Canada. Weren't they, aren't yes, they the big the liquor? Big, yeah. Seagram's could sell liquor to Saint-Pierre-Miquelin, because basically they were selling it to France. And Joe Kennedy would send boats up to Saint-Pierre-Miquelin, where he bought the Seagram's liquor, which they couldn't sell to him if he were in Boston, and he did a whole rum-running thing all the way down to Boston. And the thing I love the most is the only time I've ever been there, which was off a cruise ship. These are two relatively barren islands. You know, it's not like heavily forested or anything. The entire place... It's full of wooden houses. I mean, you know, it looks as though somehow they were right off Seattle or something. Yeah. And I thought, that can't be right. You know, there's nothing here. How do they build these wooden houses? So I asked. And what happened was the liquor came from Seagram's in wooden cases. And Kennedy broke them all up in order to put the, the booze on his boats to run him down to Boston. And he left all the, <laughs> all the wood ashore. And so they scavenged it and they used it for building materials. Oh, that's, that's, I mean, the that's, evidence that's is right there in front of you. That's what's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. So that's neat. I never, it is. I never knew that. So if you writing your way towards into the 1930s, I, I I'm making a, you I a gift of Saint-Pierre <laughs> and Miquelin, which to this day are indeed part of the French province of Brittany. Wow. So French is the official language. They're not Canadian, yep. even though they're right. Wow. You know, right Interesting. There. Yep. So, but French Guiana, my, my point was that, that they kept it yep. because it was their last kind of... Yeah, their toehold in the Americas, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but um, using it as a penal colony, I've always thought was really fascinating. You know, you know, it was 
later than Napoleon because they didn't use very good judgment to put Napoleon on Elba. Right. It was a little too close. <laughs> <laughs> and then St. Helena is off the coast of Africa. Yes. You know, so, um, but I think I'm, I've always been a little curious about why they didn't send him, but maybe they yeah. didn't have it there to no, French Guiana. No, it, it was, it was, it was, it was, I don't, don't think it was during his time. They hadn't started Maybe not. Again. I think it was like the 1850s when they started. Maybe, yeah. It would make sense because yeah. you would have thought otherwise Devil's Island would yeah. kind of hold up its hand and say, <laughs> here <laughs> we are. So anyway, you stage the prison break and astonishingly, uh, giving it, they get away. Um, and so then we come up on Isaac Bell. But, yes. But you experienced readers know that the guys that got out of prison are going to come back, right? Otherwise, why do we even have the prison break? Check the out the villains. <laughs> yep. Right. So what what is Isaac doing? I mean, what's his current job? Uh, right now, Isaac is overseeing the transfer of some rifles from the Springfield Armory to the British at the day World War One is declared. And they have to kind of way of, of fudging the legality of it um, so the weapons can be sent off and not interfere with the U.S. neutrality. But in the process, he discovers that the rifles in one of the cases has been removed, and inside is a radio transmitter, and figures out that basically it's a way for the submarines to hone in on that one particular ship. And so he realizes that there are German spies operating in America. And right. that's what sends them off and running. Which German spies would they be, right? <laughs> yep. No, I thought I thought you did that so well. Basically, they were Winchester rifles, right? But yeah. they had to be... Sold to Springfield in order to yes. Well, there came yeah there there were army weapons. Um, oh God, I remember how it worked out now. That yeah, the U.S. Army rejected, so Springfield had to take back, and then it could legally sell them to the Brits. Right, without, without violating without violating the very strict American yep. neutrality. So there were going to be three loads of them. Yeah, and three one ship, ship three has already sailed, like, sailed yep. off. Yep. Um, and this this would be the second ship. And as the, well, I'll give one last detail away. Then it's it. But as they're loading up these rifles, the that first ship that was went out was sunk by a German submarine. Right. So those rifles were lost. And Isaac, for reasons we won't go into, begins to think that there's some stuff going on, and he realizes that the guy was not trying to steal the right. the rifles, but rather insert something into the packaging for the rifles. And what would it be? So, you know, there were really active German sympathizers yeah. and saboteurs. Yeah. So where are we? We are somewhere on the East Coast. Well, yes. This yeah, this book mostly takes place uh, around New York City and New Jersey and Long Island. Okay. So um, when Isaac has to chase down a ship where he thinks that one of the transmitters is on board in one of the pilfered rifle cases, he summons up his friend Vanderbilt. Yes. So tell us about Vanderbilt, because he's very cool. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, I'm trying to think of which, which one he was, uh, his first name. Yeah, he was, he was a, a, real, a real character, um, international playboy. Um, he was the one who created the Long, Long Island Expressway as a toll road, basically just so he could go fast. <laughs> Why not if you're a Vanderbilt? Yeah, but it was, yeah. <laughs> right. um, he is also the founder of the Vanderbilt Cup for car racing. Right. Uh, he was an avid uh, uh, yachtsman, uh, pilot. Um, you know, real. He would have been someone that Isaac Bell would have been friends with. So they they are friends. And from uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Bell borrows a Curtis seaplane, and to go off to to, uh, to rescue the ship. 
Um, but yeah, he's a fascinating character. And actually, his cousin was aboard the Lusitania when it was torpedoed and didn't make it. Wow. Well, I thought I think he's a wonderful character, but I was really intrigued by the Curtis seaplane. <laughs> I mean, as I say, it's so close to the Wright brothers, and here's this amazing plane that they're talking about fuel stops, and you know, it's well, that that plane was built to fly the Atlantic. It's, it's I know, been, but that, been, yeah, that long before uh, before Lindbergh. Yeah, yeah, I know. I didn't even year, think yeah. about that. Um, but with the war going on, they they scrapped the whole plan. That's why that plane was built. Lindbergh didn't fly until the late 1920s. Yeah, so yeah. how come the Curtis didn't come back? I don't know. The war was over yeah, in 1918. Yeah, I don't. Money, maybe? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like a decade when yeah, they could yeah. have been flying the Atlantic. Yeah. So Who knows? <laughs> actually, Lindbergh's good luck in a way yeah. that, um, that it didn't work out. But I was also surprised that there they could, it could take on enough fuel to actually fly the Atlantic, you know, I mean, because even now, Stuart Woods, my Bible, and, you know, flying back and forth across the Atlantic <laughs> in his, uh, what's the, it's the Beechcraft, do I have that right? Is that the, I think it's Beechcraft makes the really sort of fancy private planes. Anyway, they had to stop and refuel somewhere in Newfoundland or Gander or some yeah. such place, you know, to even make it across the Atlantic. And here in your book, you know, they're going to pumping it in here yeah, in Long Island, it, yeah. and they're going to make it all the yeah. way across. And I thought, really? Um, it was much. It's a big plane. <laughs> yeah, but it can't have been that yeah. heavy if it could take on enough fuel. I mean, because isn't the weight part of the reason yeah. the fuel burns so fast? Right. So it wasn't going to be a particularly safe plane to no. fly across the Atlantic. <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, it was more like, you know, cardboard and matchsticks and other stuff. Anyway, so there's some great airplane stuff in the book, which I really liked. And that's about all we should probably say about okay. it. I mean, we all know that the Lusitania sank, so, you know, it's not a, not a spoiler to say that it went down, but... How it goes down and the people on it and so and what happens and, to and who's it, on it? It yeah. went off. I mean, when they were rescued, they were really close to Ireland, right? Isn't Only about six miles off the coast. Right. It wasn't that far. But so how come the Germans let it get so close to Ireland, where people? I mean, fewer people were going to die if it was six miles. It, they really were looking to for for deaths per se. They just wanted the, for the captains to sink tonnage is what mattered to them. Oh, okay. Um, but it just happened to be the submarine is at the right place at the right time or wrong depending on you know your, you know how you want to look at it. Um, yeah, it was coming. I think it was at the end of a patrol when they they saw a, a large ship come out of a fog bank, and so they stopped and waited to see what it was. And they got closer and closer. They realized it was a British flagship, so they took one shot and that was it. Um, and the, the Lusitania went down in like 19 minutes. But not everybody died. So yeah. that's another misassumption that I had all these years. I thought everybody died on the Lusitania, but a surprising number of them survived. Yeah, about, I think about 500 survivors. Um, you know, the water was cold, but not like the night the Titanic went down. Right. Um, and then there was nearby villages that saw what happened. And so they got boats out as fast as they could. You know, a lot of them were sailboats. It still took them, you know, 20, 25, 30 minutes to get out there. But, yeah, so they were managed to save a lot of people. But since it was after the Titanic, did the Lusitania actually have something approaching real life boats? They had, and they the had stuff real they life didn't boats, have? but, again, like with the Titanic, um, it got hit in the side, and it starts uh, to list. Okay. And once it starts to list, the boats on the upper side, you can't, can't, can't get, get them down. down. And then the boats on the lower side, once they're you know, going too far away from the hull, you can't get into them. Yeah, so you, you know, again with only twenty minutes, I mean, think, you know, yeah. just to, to launch them, to even know what's going on, you've already lost seven or eight minutes before you even think about launching lifeboats. You know, and so there's it, there's just no time. 
Do you remember when that Italian liner went aground a few years ago somewhere off, I don't remember, you know, the, the captain was. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't they have a, a problem with lifeboats too? Do well, I? Well, yeah, the captain took the first one. It was a problem there. Well, yeah, <laughs> even the captain was the problem, as I remember it all <laughs> yeah. the way through. But but don't I recall that I, they, I think they also did, had yeah, a problem? Yeah, they had trouble with them as well. Right, and yet if any of you have taken any kind of a cruise at all, you know, they won't even sail until everybody on board has been through a lifeboat drill. I mean, I've been through more lifeboat drills than I can believe. Even even sailing down the Mississippi, which I did in September, which I absolutely love, the upper Mississippi. Do you all know that there are locks on the upper Mississippi? Mm-hmm. And why would you think there would be locks on the upper Mississippi? Why would I think? Or just I just know there are. <laughs> but what what would you assume would be the purpose? This is a trick question. Because the water gets too shallow. It's because it's not because it. They have to keep a nine foot deep channel on the Upper Mississippi for the commercial traffic, the barge traffic, and everything to flow. So the Army Corps of Engineers in the '30s they constructed a, um, this interesting spillway dam sort of thing and a lock system. And it's just there to keep the nine-foot mm. channel. It's not there for flood control or other things. I mean, I, I, it didn't even occur to me there were locks yeah. on the upper Mississippi. So the first one we sailed into, I thought there are 27 of them between uh, Minneapolis and St. Louis. And then because up until recently there was enough water from the Ohio and the Missouri coming into the Mississippi that they didn't need, they thought, they didn't need to worry about the river being too Too shallow, which has been, you know, blasted (laughs) this this fall. Um, So the upper Mississippi, with fewer rivers coming in, actually is more navigable at the moment than the lower Mississippi because they don't have locks Mm. and everything else. But anyway, they make you do a lifeboat drill just to go down the Mississippi, when in theory, I remember going down the Yangtze River in a in a riverboat years ago, and they said they weren't going to do a lifeboat drill. We all kind of looked. They said the river's so shallow. They said if the boat goes down, you just have to go up on the upper deck. <laughs> you're and fine. You'll be fine. You just stand there, you know, until, until you're rescued. Yep. And I thought, okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, it was the Titanic that actually prompted the yes. idea of real lifeboats yep. and yep. real drills and everything, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah. Yep. They had a lot of standards put in place. But, you know, again, you know, a situation like that, you know, there's the, the fear and the panic. You know, even though you've done a lifeboat drill now, you know, in yeah. today's world, after you have to step across, you know, a, I mean, say you're on a cruise ship, you're 80 feet above the water, and you're stepping across that gap into the boat. So a lot of people just stop panic right there. Right. You know, so in theory, the lifeboat drills are a good idea. It tells you where to go. But I don't know how efficient it would be to get the people into the boats and the boats off. Don't no, know. I don't know either. Yeah. But I mean, in theory, also GPS would help, you know. Not hit the rocks there in Italy. Well, yeah. or, or help rescue operations yeah. arrive sooner yeah. than, you know. I mean, the Carpathia just happened to be there, but it wasn't like it was actually sailing to save the Titanic. Right. It was just there. In the right place, right and time. And then that happened with the Andrea Doria, too. Do you all remember that? In the 50s, there was a, an Italian sank off New York or Long Island or something. There was a serious loss of life there, yeah, too. Yeah, it was hit by a uh, ship called the Stockholm. Yeah. Knifed into her side, yeah. Uh, I think it's off the coast of the, one of the Carolinas, I think. I maybe was, New Jersey. No, I was no, going to no, say that, it no, was they, further they, north, yeah, than the Carolinas. Okay. I think New Jersey yeah. might be right. Um, I heard a story that actually one guy fell asleep in his cabin on the Andradoria when the Stockholm hit and then pulled back away. He's actually pulled onto the Stockholm. 
and survived. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the pickle finger thing. Right. <laughs> there it is. I love it. All right. So anyway, that's about all we can really say about the book. Do you guys have questions that you would like to ask? Bottled up questions? Come on. Yes. Okay. Uh, like, I mean, day to day, um, procrastinate until about two o'clock, then panic. <laughs> it's been different every book. Um, the, this last book, doing the, the Sea Wolves, um, for whatever reason, the first time in my career, I disciplined myself to write about two and a half hours every day, seven days a week, until the book was done. Uh, other books, I won't write for a few weeks, and then I'll panic and write a lot over the course of the three or four days. Um, so I've really, I, I wish I was more professional about my profession, but I'm not. <laughs> it's just when the mood strikes, you know, so uh, I'm working on the new Clive, uh, new Isaac Bell book now and trying to enforce myself to that discipline. But I'm finding I'm, I'm slipping, I'm missing a day here, missing a day. He's like, Jack, get back, get to the computer. Um, you know, it just, yeah. So it's, 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 it's a mess. <laughs> it really is a mess. When you were writing your own books, because Jack has published, you know, a number of books um, outside the Custler verse, mm -hmm. was it the same process? Pretty much. Did you always been like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's either feast or famine for me with writing. It was. So how did how did Clive recruit you to write for Clive at all? How did he recruit me? Yeah, oh. you're, the, you're the one author which I had nothing to do with, so to speak. So I've always been kind of curious. Um. I was having the worst day of my life. It was not long after my mom had passed away. My dad's estate was going through like the worst audit my lawyer had ever seen. My mom's cat that we were taking care of uh, had run away. It was just, it was a mess. And I was running some errands. I got back home and the answering machine had just clicked off. Someone left a message. And I'm like, okay, so who's this? I click. And you know, hey, Jack, it's Clive Cussler. Do you mind giving me a call? I'm like, so I called him right away. I said, "Clive, it's like I knew his sense of humor." I said, "Clive, it's it's Jack DeBrule. I was I was uh, you know monitoring my calls, and you didn't make the cut. I'm sorry." He goes, "Not skipping a beat." He goes, "Yeah, I get that a lot." <laughs> um, but we started just chit chatting about some stuff, and he says, "Jack, are you familiar with the um, the organ files with Craig Durgo?" And I said, "Yeah, I, I'd read it." Uh, he says, "Well, Craig's done another one, but he doesn't want to write a third. Would you be interested?" And I, I couldn't say yes fast enough. I mean, it was just, I was just honored, thrilled to death. Um, you know, so he said, well, you know, we talked about it a little bit. They sent me an uh, 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 advanced reader's copy of the second book, Sacred Stones. And then I came up with my own plot um, using these characters, uh, did a few sample chapters, and Clive had me come out to his house in Arizona. And, you know, we talked about it. Um, he said, you know, he liked what I'd written. He liked my writing style. He'd done a blurb for me years earlier. Uh, he said, but I, the one thing I don't like about his books, it's it's nuclear smuggling. And that's been done to death. So I want you to come up with something different. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a nap for about an hour, have it ready when I get back. <laughs> so that's, how, that's my Clive Glasser, how I get to work with him story. Well, Clive, Clive always read, you know, works by authors that he was interested in having. Um, Graham, in fact, had two little paper banks that he had written yes. for Bantam. And, you know, so I... I I read them and I thought, okay. So I took them over to Clive and plunked them down in front of him and said, "Oh, is that what you're doing? Yeah. That's oh, me. good call. Yeah. I, actually, I had read Graham's books. I just, yeah. I just reread them. Yeah. I really liked them, but yeah. you could just tell that you know he was the guy that was going to be. Yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, that he was going to be at home. In uh, um, he's done more Costco books than any of us. Yeah, he has. Yeah. 
He has, um, but he he had fewer books of his own. That's true. I think yeah. then. Yeah, you're right. And did any of you read Boyd Morrison's um, medieval book? I just finished it. Let me tell you what. It's absolutely great. It's a Clive. It's a Clive Cussler in medieval Europe. I mean, and he, his sister is a famous. Sorry, a well-respected. I won't say famous. <laughs> Medieval scholar. She's the head of um, medieval manuscripts or something at the Getty Museum. I mean, she's a really serious medievalist. And Boyd, she and Boyd had yeah. wanted to write a book together, but when they sent me the manuscript, you know, in its early stages and all, when I read it, I, you know, I just cracked up. But I said, you know, I called Boyd and I said, it's Clive. Yeah. <laughs> it's Clive at Mos Michel. Yeah. You know, the whole bit. And yeah, I mean, yeah, it, 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 dirt I, pit and armor is what it is. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think Clive would have loved it. I he mean, would've. I was sad that he didn't get to read it because he was somewhat, well, there was some skepticism about, you know, whether Boyd was going to seriously write a the medieval, medieval yeah. mystery. You I, know, but I, it, it, I think there's a sequel coming out, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's had wonderful reviews. I mean, we we did a, a, a an event for Boyd and, and his sister, and I really, really liked it. Yeah, I um, do. I agree. Yep. Um, but I, I, I thought when I, you know, when I finished it, I thought Clive would really have liked this, and he would have seen himself, you know, his imprint on Boyd. Is um, so. If you haven't read it and you're looking for another cussler, <laughs> <laughs> I can truly recommend it to you because you know it doesn't really matter that it is yeah, the lawless a, land. I think the title yeah, is. Yeah, you know, as soon as you start reading it, you think, okay, you know, <laughs> we're off on another cussler adventure, <laughs> and you know. All the all the right stuff is there. Yeah, I was really yeah. really pleased with it. Yep. And yes, they are they are writing a sequel. Good, yep. good. So, anybody else have a question they'd like to ask? Come on, guys. Yeah, I got a hold of that. Then the guy would be Dirk Tyre and then Green. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Interesting. Sir Pitt. <laughs> right. So, you know, knowing that that there was a a certain. Um, what do I want to call it? Structure to to Clive's books. Do you you know when when Robert Parker died and various people have taken over writing the Spencer novels and the other novels, they have moved them into more of the. I mean, because Spencer was a Korean War veteran, right? And now he's still working out at the gym and <laughs> doing all this great stuff. He's moved up to. He's practically past the Iraq War. He's probably now <laughs> an. Af but anyway. Um, you know, there has been some modernizing and right. you know changes in the and all. So how do, how would you all feel if um, you know the Custer books changed somewhat from the standard Custer formula? Are you okay with that? You want it to be always the same as it was? What's your thought? People try to go off like that and they screw it all up. Yeah. Don't fix it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, see, that was uh, uh, what happened with me and the saboteurs is I had, because I did kind of flipped everything on its head when I did Titanic Secret, I went to Clive and said, look, I want to do something a little bit different with this. And um, more like an Agatha Christie's type story than a uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. And Clive really liked that idea. And so we're working together. We got about two-thirds of the way through the book when he passed away. 
And so when I turn it over to Dirk, Dirk's like, uh, no, 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 no. We want the formula. We, we got to get it back. Do, you know, it was a, I mean, a lot of changes. Um, so I think Clive was open to, to ch shake it up a little bit. Um, Clive was open to anything, almost anything. Any, yeah. You know, he really was. I mean, you know, I'm just a little bit younger than Clive when he died, but um, I can remember thinking, you know, how great it was that in his 80s, yeah, um, you know, that he was constantly willing to change and do things differently. And uh, again, as long as it was entertaining, that's that. That was that was all. Thing. You yeah. know, what he really cared about was if the pages moved fast yeah. and you know if the audience was entertained. Um, I guess I guess my position would be I would hate to see it become static, you know. If it, and that's always a danger I think when you know you try to keep things the same because you'd have the real question is what would Clive do? Right. You know, would Clive have in fact you know shaken it up and done some different things? Um, and, and of course we won't know that. You know, we don't. But in the in the these other universes, the the Ludlum is you know coming back. Uh, the Clancy's have continued, and now who is it? There's, um, I'm going blank here. There's somebody else in somebody else's world that is coming back to life again. Another of the, you know, really amazing. Well, I know Wilbur Smith has some co-writers now that, that you know since he's been he passed away. Yeah, Wilbur Smith is one, and um, the Griffith W. E. B. Oh, yeah, yeah, Griffith Bill. is another one, but it's somebody. Older than that, and I just can't. I'm sorry, it's a senior moment. Up. <laughs> but anyway, I think that's always a question is, you know, is it going to be exactly the same? Or if you're going to, Robert Ludlum wrote what in the 80s, I think. Most, it was. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. how, you know, how's that going to play in, in 2022? Right. Yeah. And I, I did a really interesting event today. You all might be interested. Um, a British woman who's, who's just a scientist, and so she loves. Um, applying science to authors' works, and she's written this terrific book about all the tech and the science and the James Bond books. And it's publishing now because 60 years ago was when Dr. No first published. And she structured the book to go chronologically. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, 25 films and the whole bit. And it was really fascinating to talk to her about, uh, you know, how really terrible... Dr. No was. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was low budget, and, you know, what was he said? The dragon car or whatever, you know, it was yep. super tacky, and, you know, could you really live in a volcano and all the rest of it. And But the point is that the Bond stuff just kept evolving and kept evolving. And, you know, the last Daniel Craig, obviously, it, you know, we hit a wall there. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know how that will continue. Um, but but a whole part of the conversation was the constant evolution of um, the films, not the books so much because they're only fourteen books, but they're twenty five movies. So there wasn't a ton of source material for the movies. They had to make up the movie stuff as they right. as they moved along, and you know how things kept kept changing. You know, right. could you really paint somebody with gold paint? You know, credibly today, or you know, how would that work? The gold finger right. thing and. You know, it was really a fascinating conversation to think about if you're taking something like Bond. Yeah. And even the Sherlock Holmes stuff, you know, it keeps evolving all the time. There are people writing, and right now Agatha Christie is having this huge moment. And there's a terrific book here in the store called Marple, in which a number of contemporary authors have written an Agatha Christie 
and you know, Miss like Marple story. Val, Mc, yeah, Val McDermott. Yeah, they're all Miss yeah, Marples, yeah. obviously. Sorry, that was um, Val McDermott wrote like the second murder at the vicarage as opposed to the first. And, you know, so it was really interesting to see a sort of Christie update without really losing, you know, the whole Miss Marple right. ethos. Interesting. And the whole bit. Yeah, no, I love it. It's a really terrific book. I mean, if you've never read Christie, it's it's fun to read. So Clive never did. Clive never wrote. Did he write short stories? I know he wrote the you know the the nonfiction with Craig yeah. about the, um, the the sub you know the the, the sea hunters. Yeah, he yeah, did. There, the there were little sea short, hunters one and yeah, two. There were there were. Um, but did he write bits of fiction in those? He did a, like a fiction write up of of like uh, John F. Kennedy on the PT one hundred nine. Okay. Um, and how it, you know the the boat yeah. crash, and then it had the nonfiction part of when he went looking for it. You know, so he had um, you know he did he did wrote a short story about the Hunley and the, the men that yeah. died aboard it. Um, so that'd be about his only way of saying he did any short stories, but like an anthology or anything like that, no, never. No, but you know I don't know that the estate would ever like commission you know. 10 years from now or 20 years from now, would a bunch of contemporary authors write a Clive Custler story? You know, Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just an interesting thought. The the estate, after all, can do pretty much what it wants to, you know, um, and, you know, be be kind of curious yeah. to see as it passes along through well, generations. I'm, I'm I haven't really talked to Dirk about it, but I know Clive was dead set against Hollywood. Oh yeah! But oh I, Lord, I'll say yeah. <laughs> he just went. He would go nuclear yeah, he, if you he, he mentioned it. He was well movie. burned by that. Yeah, oh, we we um, did not discuss movies. But mm -hmm. I think I mean you know, now with streaming services and like a you know nine part or ten part story arc, they could do wonders for the the Dirk Pitt books. I mean that's the way it's like you know the the Netflix Reacher story I thought was absolutely fantastic and it, you know followed along the book very well, um, told the story at the pace it should have been told, kept all the details it should have kept in there. You know, that's the way to tell when a Clive Cosser story on, on film. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know if Dirk's open to it or not. I, I, hope, I hope he is. I'd love to see it. I don't know. I've never asked him. I, it's not a question I've ever wanted to bring up. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. So, scary question. <laughs> I know. Uh, Dirk, if you're watching, here's your mm. chance. You say so. so anybody else have anything they'd like to ask or contribute? Okay. Okay. Yes. So the question is, what is it like to build in a world that's already been created for you, which is sort of what we're talking about, but not quite as specific. It, it's 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 a challenge, but it's a fun challenge. And when I say that, it's the world of nineteen say nineteen fifteen is very familiar to us in a lot of ways, but also very foreign in a lot of ways. Um, you know, so it's it's you know finding well what slang words were popular. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always driven me crazy when you've got a, uh, you know, say a book set in, you know, 1600, and they use the word thug. Well, thug is actually short for thuggy, which is an Indian cult from the seven, late 1700s. Right. Um, you know, so the little things like that, um, you know, so staying within the parameters of what that world is. Um, but it's also confining to discover things that, you know, we think are a lot more modern. For example, the, the D-cell battery was around in 1915. You know, just you could, same as we have today. Um, you know, so it's, it's finding those little tiny things that, um, you know, that, that pinpoint that moment in time, I guess, um, and not getting the stuff wrong, right. you know, which is always the hard thing, especially, you know, 
a lot of like, the transportation stuff. I and mean, there's a lot of people out there that know a lot about cars and trains and planes. And if you get any of those details wrong, they're going to fall out of the story and they're not going to believe you anymore. And they're just going to put the book away and that's the end of it. So you have to get all that right. So, I mean, it, it's, it's tough because you really, you, you do the world building, but you, you can't screw it up because it is a real world. And there are people out there that know a lot more about it than you do. You know, so that's like, and th those are the people I played to. So I spent, you know, the the, the Devil's Island thing um, to get from one island to the other island. The, the rip current was so bad, they built an overhead tram. You know, just a little box. What I could never find is, did it have a motor or did you pull it by hand? So I was like, all right, Jack. I mean, did, no one cares about this detail, but that one guy out there that knows that it was a motor or a hand. But I went hand thing. I got a 50-50 shot. <laughs> if I get it wrong. Sir, I am so sorry. <laughs> I wish I could find you. And there's some stuff you really take for granted. For example, you know, you could say, you know, guy's got a headache. He would take an aspirin. Yeah. But in fact, aspirin wasn't invented until 1922. So, yeah. you know, that's the kind of weird thing. Yep. I remember an historical novelist who wrote a book in the 11th century, and it had to do with, um, at some point, the women were using spindles. To, to do weavy or something. <laughs> Somebody actually wrote and said it was the wrong spindle. <laughs> it was like, seriously? He there told, he told there. me yeah. that story, you know, and it was like, who knew? And actually, who cares, you know? But That yeah. one person out there that knows it. <laughs> the wrong spindle. Right. I mean, it's a Paul Doherty book, Patrick. And it was just so funny. Yeah. So do you have any questions that you want to relay? Okay, so Aaron would like to know if you're the difference between writing the Oregon Files and Isaac Bell was one harder than another. They're, I wouldn't say harder. They're completely different. And again, it's because of the history. With the Oregon Files series, you know, it's contemporary, so there's no history I have to worry about. I can let my mind run free. I can come up with any kind of terrorist plot I want to have. I can have any kind of crazy technology I want to throw out there. Um, you know, it, it, it makes it a lot easier. Um, but also with the Isaac Bell, it's kind of comforting. I don't have to worry about all that. Yeah. I have to you keep this you know, close to the way the, the history has been written. At least that's important to me. Um, in terms of character, I've only done three books with Bell so far. Um, so right now, I'm still much more comfortable writing Juan Cabrillo. I feel I have a better handle on who he is. Um, you know, when I took over the series, Craig Durger really hadn't fleshed him out that much. So I felt I kind of made him mine. Um, but, you know, Justin had done so many of the, the uh, Isaac Bell books that I have to keep the character close to what he had created. But I told Clive, Clive, I'm not a mystery writer. I'm a thriller writer. So there's going to be a lot more daring do type stuff. He goes, I, I'm no problem with that whatsoever. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've seen some people say that, well, it's not really the Isaac Bell from before. And it probably isn't. Um, well, that's true. He's a detective, isn't he? Yeah. For sure, the Van Doren detective agent. Right. Here, right? So yeah. right away, he's different than, you know, if he's working for NUMA. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, so, but, um, you know, so I would say that one's more difficult than the other. Um, they, they both have their, their ups and their downs. Um, 
But you but, also had Clive when you were raising yeah, Oregon, and that yeah, makes a difference. Make, too, yeah, you know, you know, Grandma's, you know, uh, Graham Brown and I talk about that. that you, you get in like a jam, you call Clive, and you're like, Clive, I'm into this. I wrote myself into a corner. Jack, what you have to do right here? It's like, ah, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so maybe you know, that was awfully nice to have him as a backstop. It was. You know, I've often thought that one of the interesting things about Clive was that he could he could let other people write in his universe. And he didn't smother them. I mean, every author we've ever talked to that's yeah. written for Clive has never said, you know, that Clive breathed heavily on them no, or, no. you know, throttled them back or something. And and I think, I mean, you know, I, I can still remember after Trojan Odyssey going out to dinner with him and he said to me, you know, I can't, I can't do this much heavy lifting anymore. And he said, what would you think about my, um, you know, asking somebody else to write in my universe? And I really thought about that. And I'm trying to remember, does anybody remember when that book published? How old was he when that? He must have been maybe 70? 70-something, 70 yeah. Well, but yeah. not a lot more because, you know, that the, all the, the, uh, the other authors began to come in. And I can't quite remember when Graham wrote the first one and Dirk oh and boy. whatever. You know, I don't remember the... I know you know Dirk's the first chronology of it, but well, the first one was with Paul Comprecos. Yes, it was. In, yeah, um, with Blue Gold. Yeah. Oh God, that would have been long time back. Yeah. Serpent, you're right. Right. Blue Gold was but then, one. but then he, you know, he got more and more open to it, and he got yeah. interested in like setting up things for other authors. To write. to write one, yeah, you know. I mean, like, he still stayed involved, yeah. and you know, but it was really, in many ways, more in an editorial capacity or right. um, concept. Yeah, like a, you know, he was like the ideal guy, yeah, and then and then the editor guy. But I've always thought, you know, how wonderful it was that he was able to do that and then let people, you know, write. Yeah, yeah. brave on his part. <laughs> yeah, well, he was a really. He was a really generous guy to yeah. other authors, you know. I mean, no. he was a wonderful mentor, I think. You know, there are oh, yeah. I mean, many things about him to love, and that was certainly yeah. one of them. You know, of course, making talk with you know Boyd and Graham and myself, I mean, we were all acolytes. I mean, we all read the Coster books and you know, wanted to write in that style. Yeah. So, so it was kind of you know, fitting for us to step into that role. Yeah. Anything else, Patrick? Was that it? Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the hardest question of right. all. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the short answer. Here's, I mean, I'll give you I mean, I mean, some truth. Um, I did have a plot ready to go. I was getting ready to write it. Um, it was my next project when Clive got in back in touch with me to do um, the Isaac Bell books. Um, I do have the second book of a two-book deal um, for that. So there is a plot. There is yeah, a publisher ready to go for it, but it might be a while. I mean, it's just I, I really enjoy doing these books, and I'll be perfectly candid. I get paid a lot more for doing these books than I ever did for Mercer. Yeah, um, but it's a steady paycheck. Yes, it's a steady paycheck. But I mean, the cool thing, and I'm I'm blessed by this, is um, the Lightning Stones actually earned out the full advance for both books, which unprecedented, really. I think. Um, you know, so kind of takes the pressure off me a little bit. So I will be able to get it done, but I don't know when. <laughs> Tell Dirk to fire me. Yep. There you go. One book. I actually approached Clive uh, years ago about doing, you know, 
all these series, you know, all these books on one plot. You know, so to have, you know, oh, yeah. Isaac Bell discover something, or he's he's the historic part of it, and then you know uh, uh, the Numophiles guy takes over, and then uh, the Fargos are part of the adventure, and then finally you know, it would culminate. You know, this five book run will culminate with Dirk Pitt saving the day at the end, and Cloud goes, "Yeah, it's too complex. Don't do that." So um, as on a lark, Boyd and Graham when they did um, Organ Files and um, the Numophiles actually had a scene where the characters from both books were in the same spot at the same time. And I think it was in a warehouse in, in, in Malta. And they said to coordinate that took them months. And just to get the timing right, the whole nine yards, and they go, but that little bit took that long. I'm glad I never, we never ran with that other idea. <laughs> Forget it. That would be extremely complicated. Yeah, but it, uh, one more though, but it was, and I, I'm, I'm also very grateful for Clive. I don't know if you ever knew, but Clive did let me put Mercer in one of the, yeah, the Oregon Files books just on a lark. Great. Well, we're done. Nobody has anything else they want to add? No? All right. Well, in that case, Jack, thank you so much for no, coming Robert, out here. It was you. wonderful of you to travel this far, especially in a holiday week, to see us. So um, thank you all very much for coming tonight. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. Um, these um, interviews stay up on our Facebook and YouTube pages forever, so you know other Custler fans who couldn't make it would like to come. What's what's going on with the Custler um, conference and so forth? You are. Good. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad you're keeping it going. All right. Great group of people. <laughs> right? Exactly. And the museum is still, Terry's still running the museum up there, isn't she? So do you get to actually have things at the at the car museum when you're in Denver, or where do you do it? Oh, that's nice. Great. I'm sure it is, but you've gone to numerous places. I think. Haven't you been to Charleston? And where have you been? Okay. Yeah, I, I went Vegas a couple of times. Yep. Didn't we have one here in 19, 2019, right in October before the yeah pandemic? Because I remember Dirk and his sisters were there. Yeah. Actually, I talked, didn't I? I forgot. Yes, I had. <laughs> I, there I was. Right. And I gave you, I gave you the photos, didn't I? On the right, because that was a wonderful. That was a compilation of photos for Clive's 80th birthday. Oh, really? Yes, oh, then nice. Dirk and Janet and all ran into the family archives. And it was a really nice. We did that at the Veltmore, and we showed okay. it all on a big screen and everything. Oh. It was really cool. That's but one time know, I miss it. <laughs> it. It reminds you that you know Clive actually did so many of the things that he wrote about. You know. Um, I was a conversation today. We were talking about Daniel Craig and how brutal it was, you know, for him to do so many of the James Bond right. stunts, and you know that's why he's retired. But Clive actually, you know, did. I wanted to say, you know, Clive actually did a lot of his own stuff too, or you know, not in the books, yeah. but you know, he he was writing in part from from his from experience. experiences. Yeah, that it humbled me when I went to the first uh, International Thriller Writers Conference. 
and I'm starting to talk to them, these these folks and like you know so what's your background? Oh, I was a you know CIA case officer for 12 years. Right. And, you know I was part of the hostage rescue team, or I, was, I worked as a SWAT sniper. I'm like, I was an educated bartender. That's what all I got going for me. <laughs> oh, it is. It really is interesting the credentials. That yeah. Now it seems like you can have a military career and then retire and write. Don Bentley's yeah. like that. Jack Carr's yeah, like that. Yeah, you know, a whole bunch of those guys are. Um, yeah. Um, there's another one writing in. I can't think of his name at the moment, but anyway, there's at least five of them I yeah. can think of that are retired military. Yeah, you write what you know. That's why created by character Harry White, the yeah. drunk guy. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know him. You know, Mark Cameron is the U.S. Marshal and all. He's one of the people writing the Clancy's, and right, yeah. you know, yeah. So there's a lot of authenticity, so to speak, and all of that, which is great. So, do you um, want to get your book signed? Jack could just stay right here. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.